This is episode 107 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Women's Camp 2014, Dancing on the Battlefield with Sherry Rose Shepherd. This is session two from Saturday morning. Tonight, I'm talking about can't we just kill them and tell God they died? No, I'm talking about relationships. Yesterday, we talked about dancing on the battlefield, really getting perspective on our problems, rising above them, fighting the good fight, keeping our faith. Do you remember the dance acronym? D is do what God tells you to do because only doing it God's way will it work out the way that he has intended. The only way is God's way. What's the A? Access is grace. Remember what we learned? No one's thinking about you as much as you are, so get over yourself. So practice that again. Look at someone and say, get over yourself. Okay, what was the N? How'd you do this week so far, or this last day, last 24 hours? How'd you do not saying negative things about yourself? Little better? At least aware of it? Okay, isn't it amazing when you become aware of it, how much we do? Okay, C, what is C? Come out of hiding. And what was the E? How many of you in this room, God spoke to you something that you knew? He said, I want you to eliminate this. It's between you and me, and I want it gone. Raise your hand if you found something. Four people. All of you else are perfect Christians. (laughs) There's not one thing that God spoke to you last night that you need to eliminate. You're telling me you never, you watch all the right shows. You do all the right things. You say all the right things. You have all perfect relationships. How many of you know that God wants something that he, he wants you to let go of? or lay down. There we go. Now honesty is coming. Okay, remember back to the other lesson? No one's thinking about you as much as you are. So if we're worried about raising our hand, then we're worried about what everybody else thinks, and they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about what you think about them. Remember? What I'm going to talk about tonight is is an important message because um, I think knowing God and knowing his grace is the most beautiful thing, but giving his grace and giving his love is the hardest thing. Have you noticed that? To receive it is a beautiful thing. To give it to each other is a hard thing. But in John 13, 35, Jesus says, your love for one another will prove, prove to the world that you are my disciples. And in Genesis, once God created the heavens and the earth and the first man, what's the first thing he said before he created the second person? It's not good to be alone. But so many of us have been hurt by someone that we feel that it's better to guard our heart and to not love and not let anybody in because we don't want to feel pain again of loving. But he's saying it's not good for man to be alone. I don't know about you, but I've kind of had this thought. I used to think I'd be the perfect Christian if I didn't have to deal with people. (laughs) Have you ever had that thought? And where I got that title, Can't We Just Kill Them Until God They Died, just so you know, that was from a best-selling Christian book on relationships 10 years ago. Which shows you, we all went out and made that bestsellers. When I am, um, uh, several years ago, I was asked to speak to 5,000 men on how to love their wives. It was a very surprising booking request through Focus on the Family. I never thought I would do that. And um, I was telling the women at the retreat, if you could pray for me. And one woman came up to me and she said, I will definitely pray for you, but um, can you pray for me? Because I sure wish that my husband could come and learn how to love me. And I said, well, do you pray scripture over your husband? And she said, every night, right before he falls asleep, 
I pray Psalm 109, verse 8, once he's in a deep sleep. May his days be few and another take his place in leadership. Amen. <laughs> now, the reason why I bring that up is not to mock a single man or make fun of the scripture, even though those men back there are laughing. <laughs> I bring that up because many times the scripture is not working in our relationships because we're not using it the way God intended it. We're using it as a sword to cut each other up, as a um, way to validate our point. But really, the word of God is very personal, and it's between us and the Lord. And it's for us to become more like Christ, for us to know. How many times have you heard a message where you kept thinking, I wish so-and-so was hearing this <laughs> the whole time? Or what about the junior Holy Spirit elbow? Woo, woo, you got that? Did you hear that? Did you know that? What would I, and it's all of us. It's so easy to see everybody else's walk with God, isn't it? But there's also something else that's going on, and it's where people that you love and may know or don't mean to or maybe mean to, but manipulate the scripture to manipulate you. So I want to start by saying, how do I know if when someone confronts me with the word of God, because Satan knows the word of God, if it's actually from God. Would anybody in this room like to know the answer to that question? I can give you a very black and white protective answer to that. I talked about this a little bit last night. If someone uses the word of God to you, and it brings, I talked about this last night, confusion, chaos, condemnation, is God any of those things? But if someone uses the word and it brings confirmation, conviction, which brings change, or confrontation, or comfort, than it is the word of God. Does that help anybody in this room? Because you can really get messed up. And the second thing is, to understand Ephesians 6.12 is actually true. Ephesians 6.12, for your struggle, my struggle, is not against each other, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against powers in this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So what I need to understand is that there is an enemy that wants to divide me from everybody I love and anybody in my life and wants to divide you. And here's how it looks if we're not careful. What happens is we forget that we're on the same team fighting the same enemy, so we make each other the enemy. Not that the enemy can't use us in each other's lives if we're not careful and we, by things we say and the way we hurt people, but we're on the same team. We're fighting the same enemy, and Satan's goal is to divide us. Why would he want to do that? Well, it looks like this. If our military was going to go to war Monday, and we were all, and all branches, all branches were called, we need every branch of the military to defeat the enemy. Every branch is called. We're all tuning in on TV. We're all praying. We're all watching our military going towards enemy lines. And in the midst of it, they start arguing amongst each other that the Air Force is better than the Army and the Army is better than the Marines and the Marines is better than this. And they start shooting at each other's teams. That's what it looks like when churches are divided and families are divided, 
And people are divided against each other that are in God's army. And while we're fighting with each other, proving our points, Satan is gaining ground every day. And there's nothing that Jesus says that is not true. He says, you're going to prove that you belong to me by the way that you love each other. He even says, when you come to the altar to bring me your gifts, your tithes, your offering, leave them there if you have an offense with someone and go make things right. Because a good deed for someone doesn't cancel out a bad deed that you did to someone else. And sometimes we almost try to earn our way to redemption when it's so much better just to be able to confess to one another, you know what, I said something I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have been so bold. I shouldn't have lied to you. I shouldn't have manipulated you. And to go there and just humble yourself, make things right, get it all cleaned out so they also feel safe coming to you. And we need to understand that if we don't learn to love one another, what will happen to those that want to try to find Christ if the children, the body of Christ, is shooting at each other? I know exactly what will happen. It's what's happening. People are going to other churches that are not Christ. And here's what they're saying. Well, at least they love each other. At least they get along with one another. So we have a responsibility to conquer this. And if, if we really understood the seriousness of it, when 9-11 hit, it was a disaster. And what the enemy meant to destroy us united the United States of America for the first time. Do you remember? For the first time, the United States of America was united and all they cared about wasn't what political party they were or what church they belonged to. They only cared about one thing, sticking together and protecting this beautiful nation. That's how we, that is the perspective that we're going to need now. And I don't know about you, but I know I don't like myself when I'm a whiner. Do you? Jesus turned the water into wine. He can't turn our whining into anything. And we can nitpick each other over and over and over again and be right. But there's so much more important things than being right, and that's doing what's right. It's so much more important to prove your love than to prove your point. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross, but when he went to the cross, he goes, let me show you how much I love you. And he did. And that's what God wants from us. And many times... What happens is we misread each other's actions. Let's say that um, you want me to pray for you. And I'm at the top up there, but I have to go to the bathroom. So I run out the door to go to the bathroom, and you think, because Satan whispers to you, that I don't want to talk to you, so I ran out the door. That's how he works. We misread each other's actions. Maybe you're not having a good day, and you didn't smile at someone the way that you used to, so they think you don't like them. And then we add to it, we go tell 17 people. I went to pray with our speaker, and she ran out the door. She ran away from me. Oh, man, that's terrible. Let me tell 14 more people. <laughs> and that's what we do. 
Or we see somebody's husband opening the door for them, and they're like, my husband never opens the car door for me. But really, the husband's standing there going, get out of the car and don't make me look bad. We're going to church. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know what conversation is going on, what we think we see. <laughs> Everything always looks better from a distance. Have you noticed that? That's why you loved your husband so much when you were dating. No, <laughs> I'm just saying everything looks better through illusion. And the enemy would love to get us just to be, everybody has it better than us. No one likes us unless everybody's doing the happy dance when they see us. We have no friends. Is this not true? But what if we did what Jesus said? Just got the 411. He says when someone offends you, go privately and point out the fault. He just wants you to go. So you can go and say, hey, I don't know if you meant to, but I wanted to pray with you, and it seemed like you were running away from me. And I'd say, no, I had a baby at 40 and have no bladder control. No, but, but no, my, my point is it would be straightened out. Satan would be defeated, and you wouldn't have to tell 14 other people or mess with it your own mind or hold it in. So what happens is we react by how we feel many times, not what's real. Have you ever assumed someone thought something or acted a certain way, and once you finally did find out, it had nothing to do with you at all? I realize this is hard for us to believe, but it isn't always about us. <laughs> Look at someone and go, it isn't all about you. But then tell them it is about you. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> so, like, how do we handle this? Recognize, I'm going to, before I get into this message, we're on the same team fighting the same enemy. We're at war. We're at war for souls in, to further God's kingdom. We're at war for this generation right here in their 20s and the generations that are in their teens. We're at war. They are watching us. And if they do not see a real God with a real faith, not a perfect faith, it's better that they would see all your imperfections and how you just let God be perfect through you. They want a real God. They want real answers. They, the number one thing with the next generation is reality shows. Have you noticed? They're the number one things on TV for these youth. We need to have a reality faith show. We need to show the good, bad, and ugly of walking with Christ and how much work it is and say this isn't easy. This is hard. I remember one time, my son saw me and Steve fighting, and he says, Mama, is there anything as a perfect marriage? I said, son, I have a question for you. He's five years old. I go, do you think there's any such thing as a perfect person? He goes, well, no. We all know that only Jesus is perfect. I said, well, then how would two imperfect people equal a perfect relationship? He's like, good point, Mommy. I better be careful who I marry. You know, because I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. My parents being married and divorced three times each and five blended families, a very passionate Jewish family. I saw a lot of fighting. I saw a lot of proving my point. I saw a lot of let's win the battle and lose the war. And that's what you have to ask yourself. When you go in for the kill to prove your point or to fight, say, is this a battle even worth fighting? Is this? Or am I winning the battle and losing the relationship, losing the war? How many of you, I know myself, have engaged in an argument that was so not worth engaging in? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. And it sucked the life out of you. So the first thing is when you are tempted and someone is one of those people that likes to debate and wants to always be right and kind of bully you into a fight, 
You have to literally pray, God, is this a fight you want me to engage in? Just shoot up a quick prayer to God. God, is, is this something you want me to engage in? Because Jesus has turned the other cheek, and my favorite two words when I'm mentoring is don't engage. Because if you get engage, you get trapped. Have you noticed that? Only engage if it's a fight worth fighting. Well, with my family, because of all the dysfunction, all I had as a foundation, not only just was blame, bitterness, anger, I'm this way because of them, and just lots of excuses. And you know what's weird? When I became a Christian and started seeing families that had some sort of unity, instead of becoming better, even though God gave me wonderful spiritual family to love on me, I started to feel envious and kind of felt like God was picking on me. And why did you get to go to Bible school and I didn't? And why were you at this church? And why are you helping? You know, just all those things that go through your mind when you look at where you came from. And again, with the rose-colored glasses. And one day I said to God, why? And the Lord said to me, stop looking outward. Start looking upward and start looking inward and we can start making changes. See, I can't change the family I grew up in. But I can certainly, in Jesus' name, build a new foundation for my family. Amen? Amen. And I think that's the attitude I had to have. I can live in the rearview mirror with regret and anger and sadness and frustration or I can say, what do I have? And so what God brought me to, and this is the basis of my life now in this teaching tonight, is Nehemiah 2.17. I would strongly suggest that you study Nehemiah this weekend when you have time or when you get home. But here is a setting that gives us the foundation for rebuilding or building any wreckage. Because even if you came from the most wonderful, godly Christian family in the world, you still live among the wreckage. Your kids still go to school and your grandkids with those that are come from wreckage. 50% of our churches now, they say, are divorced. That's hard to believe. That's a lot of wreckage. So it is all of our problems. And here's Nehemiah, and he is living among the wreckage. God's people have been absolutely discouraged, destroyed, beaten down, the wall of Jerusalem had been broken down, and every foundation that they knew, everything that they knew wasn't any longer. You're dealing with one in two of us where everything we knew is no longer. And Nehemiah doesn't go, that's awesome. I like wreckage. Let's eat rocks. No, that's not what he does. He actually does what God does. He addresses real issues. And he starts with truth. You know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So he first addresses the problem. When your parents and grandparents, and there's wreckage, you need to first address the problem. Yes, son or daughter, we are in trouble. Yes, there is issues going on with grandma, grandpa, coach, aunt, uncle, church, whatever it is. Let them know you understand there's truth. Don't give them a fantasy faith that they're looking at you like you're high on Jesus. 
where they can't relate. They're going, do you not see the wreckage? Because Jesus sees the wreckage. And, and Nehemiah sees the wreckage. But his attitude is so beautiful. He says, but let us rebuild this wall and end this disgrace. So when, like when my son would have a coach that wasn't kind, that you know mama bear comes out when someone hits your kids wrong, right? Who here is mama bear besides me? You know exactly what I'm talking about. But God would show me, no, I don't want you to go rescue Jake. I want you to teach him how to handle the wreckage. And, it, and the way that looks, moms and grandmas, is if King David's mommy ran out on the field and said, give me the rock, baby, I'll kill the giant for you. You might get hurt. <laughs> We're not teaching them anything. And so, he's, so he gathers God's people. And he gives them a victory speech. Let's end this disgrace. And so they get vision past their own offenses and discouragement and depression and pain. And he doesn't give them new material to build from. He says, no, 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 you rebuild from the wreckage. And so each one of God's people takes a stone from the wreckage. And instead of throwing it at each other, they start to lay the stone, one stone at a time, a stone in one hand and a sword in the other to protect what they're building. When you're rebuilding from wreckage, whether it's a girlfriend that broke your heart, a teacher, a boss, maybe a couple that you used to hang out with, a pastor's situation, a church that hurt you. I don't know, but when you're building from the wreckage, can I say this? Do not surround yourself with people that are not for the rebuilding because it will discourage you. And you're already weak. If you're in a weak moment, you want someone that is going to cheer you on and say, yep, you're gonna, I'm going to stand here with you. I'm going to pray you through. Let's rebuild. We need those that are going to help rebuild. And that wall was restored better and stronger than before. But every one of us needs to pick up a stone. Hold out your hand for a moment. Every one of us has something from the wreckage. Every one of us at some point in life has been offended, maybe more than others, betrayed, disappointed. And so I have this stone, and... And with the stone, I have a choice. And, and if I were to tell you, notice I don't share with you in detail about abuse from my past because I don't want to give Satan more attention than I give God. I tell you enough to say, it's been bad. <laughs> but no way am I going to take my 45 minutes and tell you what the devil did. I want to tell you what God can do. I don't want to talk about the former things. I want to talk about the new thing. Because it brings me into the new place as well. And so here's the stone. And if I were to tell you in detail what I've walked through, you would take your stone and you would throw it with me at those who hurt me because we're Christian sisters in the Lord. And I would probably do the same for you. But I hold this stone. And if I throw it justifiably at the person that hurt me, who else am I going to hit? And what is my legacy going to be? And will it really repair any damage done? Or will I add to the wreckage? And I picture when I'm telling us to hold the stone out, Jesus with all those accusers against that prostitute, and they all wanted to stone her, and they justifiably, according to the law, could have. 
and Jesus is put in a tight spot. How do I obey the law that was established? And how do I show the grace of who I am? And he's brilliant. Of course he is. He's the son of God. But he's brilliant. And he says, those of you who have not sinned, you throw the first stone. We want to be remembered. Well, this is where I was at. So I'm, I get pregnant on my honeymoon, as I told you, on birth control, so that worked well. And I have this baby in my belly, and I have no relationship with my mom. When my parents divorced, I went with my dad. Now, I was 12 at that time, and now I'm 29 carrying my first baby. And all I could think about is, I'm going to be a mom, and I don't have a relationship with my mom. Justifiably so. No one would have told me to go back and make a relationship with her from what I walked through. But I wanted to lay some kind of stone, even if that stone was going to be rejected. And so I wrote her to let her know that I was going to have a baby and I wanted her to meet that baby and I'd like to talk with her. And I got this box in the mail from her. I was so excited. It had my baby clothes in it and my birth, all this, all, I mean, it had, I thought it had baby clothes in it and gifts. I opened up and it had my baby clothes, my birth certificate, and a note that said, I wish you'd never been born. No one's caused me more pain than you. My mom is not a horrible person. My mom was a hurting person and hurting people hurt people. But at the time, I didn't understand that. And I was devastated by that rejection. And I cried out to God and said, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault they had affairs. It's not my fault her mom abused her. Why am I being blamed for her pain? I don't feel like I did anything wrong, Jesus. And I felt the Lord say to me, either did I. But I went to a cross for you. Could you try to love her most when she deserves it the least? So I wrote her a letter asking her to forgive me for whatever I'd done to cause her to regret giving birth to me. Today, my mom lives with me. I care for her in her older years. She's a born-again Christian, and God has restored that relationship. Many things happened in that moment. My daughter has a great relationship with my mom, one like I'll never have. My mom knows God as the timeless redeemer by being able to have that relationship with my daughter. Now, I could say, you didn't love me that way, so I'm not going to let you love my daughter that way. Or I could begin building what I really want, which is a family. Do you see the difference? But there's some of you in this room that you have laid stones, and you have pursued those that have rejected you. And God may be speaking to you, to lay them down, dust off your feet, and go to the next town because someone else is waiting to be loved by you. God may be speaking to you like he spoke to the prodigal's father, where the prodigal's father had to let the father, the prodigal, go until he returned. Only that's between you and God. I'm going to say this. Do everything you can to reconcile because the Bible says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Forgiveness doesn't mean you won't hurt. Forgiveness doesn't mean 
that you're not going to have to deal with the wreckage that someone else has caused. Forgiveness means no payback. It means I'm not going to spend my life trying to pay you back or waiting for you to get yours because of what you did for me. And forgiveness releases you from being a prisoner to their pain that they caused. It's saying, I'll just give you to God. He'll give you a much bigger spanking than I ever could. When God says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone, he knows that there's impossible situations that cannot be reconciled. There's impossible people that do not want to make things right with you. If you're in that situation and you're like, gosh, I miss that friendship, or I did everything I can, and, 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 and you tried to save that relationship, and they did not make it right with you, and you're heartbroken. Can I share with you something I pray will bring healing to you? If there's conflict, because you don't truly know what a relationship is until it's tested. You don't even know who someone is until the relationship's tested. Jesus says anybody can be all nice and hunky-dory when all's going good. Even non-Christians do that, right? But if they refuse restoration... You didn't lose a friend because you never had one. Because you can't see true character until they can't get anything from you. That's true, friends. Someone that loves you that can't get anything from you and loves you in spite of you, there's your friends. And I'm going to show you what that looks like. But I want to start with, first of all, Isaiah 58, 12 first, before I should talk about the next thing. But Isaiah 58, 12, this is what I would like on my gravestone. I would like this scripture put on my gravestone because I am a first-generation Christian of a Jewish family that, as I told you, is now born again. I came from three divorces, five blended families, and I get to rebuild a family for my family. And I have been put to the test, especially this last month, in ways I never thought that my love would be tested for son, a spiritual son. And in Isaiah 58, 12, here's what, here's what I pray. It says, some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your city, and you will be known as the rebuilder of walls and the restorer of homes. See, if you don't throw that stone and you lay it down, and let's say that I had um, laid that stone down with my mom in we didn't get reconciled. She never talked to me again. It didn't change one thing. It changed everything for me and my family, no matter how she reacted. Because the last act, before I go home to be with the Lord, that my children would see is that mom laid the stone, forgave grandma, did what she could, and that is my legacy. Do you see the difference? So what you can't do is be mad at God because you did the right thing and the person you did the right thing to, the God thing to, reacted the wrong way. If they react the wrong way, that's between them and God. Your legacy and your blessing is still in place regardless of the action or reaction of others. Jesus wasn't valued and appreciated why he was being beaten and taken to the cross. Was he? 
He could have said, I'm not getting the reaction I want. You all should be completely valuing and appreciating and weeping for what I'm sacrificing for you. But we did during that time. So if our Christian walk and the way we love others and the way we react in obedience to God is based on everybody else's actions, then none of us are ever going to become who we want to be. Have you anybody in this room learned that we're difficult to get along with? I said in my workshop this morning, I just wish we would introduce ourselves this way. Hi, my name is Sherry Rose, and I will let you down. Just think the pressure that would take off. The study the bar so high. I'm a perfect person. I'll never do anything. I'm a perfect Christian. And then you stand the bar goes down, down, down. Before I get into the teaching, I have two questions. One, one main question. How many in this room have ever been discipled according to the word of God? How to be in a healthy relationship? It's always the same. Eight to ten people in the whole room. No wonder we need God's word. You'll notice I only teach you from God's word because opinions mean nothing. And let me help you with this. Opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone has one. Okay? You don't want someone's opinion. And you never want a teacher up here on a platform teaching you from what they think. You want the word of God or nothing. Amen? So we're going to start with the word of God before I start teaching. Now keep in mind, we have not been discipled according to the word of God. So what's going to happen is you're going to start to feel things. As I start to get into this, it's going to say, ouch. That is called conviction. But if you start to feel guilt and condemning, that's condemnation. Guilt is not from God. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But conviction of the Holy Spirit is from God. Guilt change you to your past. Conviction brings change. Condemnation paralyzes you. Do you understand the difference? So, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we know we can't change anybody but ourselves. But we want to be rebuilders. We want to be like Nehemiah. We want to end this disgrace. We want to learn from your word how to love one another so we can enjoy this walk and this march and this fight. In Jesus' name, have your way. Amen. Okay, the first thing we're going to talk about, if you're going to build any relationship, I just got done saying you don't know what a relationship is until it's tested. You have no idea who your true friends are until it's tested. Who hangs with you after the fire is 1 Samuel 18. We're going to go there first. And it's between, it's in 1 Samuel 18. It's an amazing story between the future King David, who is not yet king, and Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul, the reigning king. And there's a scene where uh, you know, Jonathan's dad, Saul, used to love David, but then David became so popular that he got jealous of him, decided he would try to kill him off. And Jonathan and David are very, very close friends, and there's a scene where David has to flee basically for his life. So he goes from just popular, winning all kinds of battles, and Jonathan got to walk with him while he was all popular. And then now he is hiding from his life, and Jonathan's dad wants to kill him on top of it. Um, the fascinating thing of this story to me, even before we get into it, is that Jonathan was literally forfeiting his rightful position for David. Because if Jonathan is the son of the reigning king, then he should have taken over the crown. But God appointed David. So let me tell you what that looks like in your world. You have very rich parents. 
they're going to leave you a million dollars and a mansion. And you have all kinds of plans to use that, even for good things. And about three months before they pass away, they tell you they decided to give it to your best friend instead, and you get nothing. And you decide, well, still stay best friends with your best friend. It's basically what Jonathan did for David. So there's the scene where, where David is very discouraged. If you read the Psalms, he's weeping. He said, I can't cry anymore. My bones are dried up. The pain is so excruciating. The enemies are more than I can handle. And Jonathan shows up on the screen, and David's distressed. And Jonathan is dressed in his royal wardrobe, and he's been eating healthy, and David's been eating bugs. And in that moment, he looks at David, and here is the most beautiful, beautiful illustration of love and honor. He removes his royal wardrobe, and he puts it on David. And the Bible says in that moment, they became as close as two people possibly I say they birthed the BFF club. But here's what happened in that moment. Let's learn from this. Is our father the king of kings? Do you believe that? So that makes us a child of the king, right? So here's David not acting like a future king. Here's David broken and bruised and beaten down. Here's David that can't offer Jonathan anything anymore. He's not popular anymore. No, he never hanging out with David is dangerous because he has so many enemies. And it's kind of popular. Going against his dad who hates him. And dresses David in his royal wardrobe and he reminds him who he is. Even in his dirt and his describe Jonathan treats David like the royalty he is. And he dresses him. And he reminds him of who he is in Christ. He's lesson number one of relationship. Speak to the king inside the person. Dress them in the royal wardrobe. When you see them down and depressed and they don't feel good about themselves. Even if it was them who put themselves in that position, remind them who they are in Christ. They don't even if position. John fifteen thirteen, Jonathan sure lived this greater love has nothing than this and he that lays down his life for his friends. Here's the second thing you might want to write in the front page of your Bible. That Jonathan about yourself but Jonathan cared more about God's will being done than his rights. If it's my rights, then I'm going to keep score how many times you text me and how many times I text you. If it's my rights, I'm going to keep score how many times you treat me to lunch, how many times I treated you to lunch. But if my goal is to go in and treat you like royalty and to remind you who you are in Christ and to bless you whether you can do anything for me or not, that's a friend. Jonathan could have walked away from David in his dark hour. Many times we thought, oh, the friendship isn't what it used to be. The marriage isn't what it used to be. And we walk away from those that have been loyal and faithful to us. Because they can no longer give us and do for us what they used to. 
or people do that to us. Proverbs 26, Bible, the Bible says, Many will say that they are loyal friends, but who can find one that is truly reliable? So as we look at this beautiful story, do I care more about God's will or my rights? Do I dress people in a royal wardrobe? Or do I care for them or do I criticize them? Do I build them up or do I bulldoze them? Would they say that I am a completer or a competitor? Would they say that I am a blessing or a burden? Would they say that I build or bulldoze? Would they say that I add or subtract from their joy? Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And if someone steals your joy, they've stolen your strength. Now ask yourself this about your friends because you are valuable. And Jesus picked his 12 disciples. He didn't say the first 12 to sign up. So now take a moment, think about who you've allowed in your inner circle. Because Jesus picked his, which means if your Savior did, guess what? You get the right to do what? Pick your inner circle. I'm not talking about ministering to the masses. I'm not talking about when you're out and about running here. I'm talking about who is in your home around your children, about your life. You get to be just like Jesus. So now let's think about the people you've allowed in your life. Just for a moment, ask yourself this. Put them in your head. Lord, give us wisdom. Are they adders or subtractors? Do they draw me closer to God or away from God? Are they builders or are they bulldozers? Are they comforts or are they critics? Are they a blessing or are they a burden? And the most important question to ask, what are the fruits that prove to me that this friendship is indeed from God? How do you feel about yourself after you spent time with them? If you feel jealous and envious or judged or inferior, critiqued, you might want to reevaluate who's in your inner circle. And now ask ourselves this. How do others feel about themselves after they spent time with me? Those are really good questions for you to write somewhere that you can see often so you can stay in the fruitful relationships that keep you growing closer to God and keep you growing in God. Because I don't know about you, but there's nothing I love more than being around with someone that I can feel comfortable and at home with. What about you? There's nothing I love more than being with someone that reminds me of who I am in Christ. And someone that will be real with me. They're not having a good day, they'll tell me. Not, I'm doing great. I'm always doing great. No, I never have a single problem in the world. I fast seven days a week, and I read the Bible seven hours a day. My children are perfect, and I clean my home, and it's never had dirt in it ever. Build by watering what needs to be watered, and pull the weeds those things in your life that are destroying your relationships, and here's what I'm going to say. If you have relationships in your life that are coming between you and your husband, then they need to be removed, no matter how good they feel. If they divide a family, would God divide a family? Would God put a relationship in your life that would turn you from your own husband? No. Secondly, the weeds... If you have relationships in your home that they bring in 
everything opposite of what you believe and cause conflict and confusion with you and your children, you need to remove them. Watch your inner circle. Thirdly, hard as it is, we need to water those closest to us first. It's really easy to do good deeds for strangers because it feels good and they appreciate it. It's a lot harder to do those things for those closest to you. But it's crucial. And just as Jonathan honored David as royalty, the biggest gift you can give to your family, if you go back off this mountain and you begin to think of your family as royalty, what can I do? Can I stand when they come in the room? Can I turn the phone off for an hour and sit down and talk with them? Can I set a table when guests aren't coming over just so they feel like they're important? Just things that bring value and honor to those closest to you. Proverbs 10:11 says, the words of the godly are a life-giving fountain. So think about your conversations. And there's people maybe around you that need to be watered, and you're not watering them. And so they're starving, and people will do crazy things when they're dying of thirst. And if they're dying of thirst, and if there's a husband not watering a wife, she's going to be dying of thirst. She's going to react in ways that she doesn't want to. She's not watered by the man. And the same with your husband if he's not watered. He could be acting and reacting, or your children. So many times our good intentions, we minister to all body, everybody else in our church, and activities, 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 activities. There's no time for those who are close. We're just dragging them from one place to another. Eat your fast food, put on a smile, let's do God's work. Proverbs 27, there's God huge. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. Here's something that I've learned that will really help your relationships, every one of them. Would you agree that we all have different languages? Okay. So here's something that will help if you want to be close to people you love. Just because it's not a need for you doesn't mean it's not a need. So the best way that I can honor you is find out what your needs are and not withhold good and meet your need, not meet your need with what I need, or not think it's a need. Like, that's simply that she needs that much affirmation. Well, maybe her gift is words of affirmation. That's her love language or his love language, and that's what they need to feel love. Silly, they need that much quality time. No one needs that much quality time. Maybe that's what they need. Study those. Because when you go to a doctor and something and you're sick, the doctor asks questions, doesn't he? How are you feeling? Does that hurt? How does that feel? When I do that, do you feel this? They ask questions so they can figure it out. Many of us are having allergic or getting allergic reactions. We love the people closest to us and we cannot figure out. Why in the world our love is not watering them? Have you ever been in that situation where you've done something really nice for people and you just did not get the reaction that you wanted? 
it's because we're not studying those that we're watering, and we're not understanding that they don't have maybe the same love language we do, or we just think their need is ridiculous. But love says, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And we're an extension of God's love to meet each other's needs. And Proverbs 11.25, even if it's not a need for you, here's a promise for you if you'll refresh yourselves. Proverbs 11.25 says, if those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Rebuild by speaking life into death. It can be the worst situation, and you can still somehow go, you know what, even if we agree to disagree, I want you to know that I don't want to wreck this relationship. Or I still love you. Something, something that speaks life. Uh, David had two people on the way to the crown that saved his destiny. Jonathan was the first one by dressing him in his royal wardrobe when he was so depressed and distraught. And the second one, once he came out of the cave and started winning battles again, he 